From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace. It's the voice of every man. Proclaims the iconic voice of Bette Midler. Peace and harmony is certainly what we all at Solution to Balance are hoping to achieve. Welcome, friends. You're listening to Solution to Balance. Uh, the following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at solutionsofbalance2018 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions to Balance. Our guests today are Dr. Darren Pugh and Dr. Karen Ross. They've asked us to call them by their first names. Welcome, Darren and Karen, to Solutions to Violence. Thank you. Happy to be here. Darren Pugh is an associate professor of of conflict resolution and executive director of the Center for Peace and Democracy and Development at UMass Boston. He studied the relationship between conflict resolution methods and particularly interfaith and interethnic peace building and democratic development in Africa and elsewhere. Dr. Q has been a consultant on democracy and peace initiatives in the United Nations, the U.S. Institute for Peace, the U.S. State Department, and to a number of NGOs, including the Carter Center and uh, in 1999, effort for President Carter to mediate conflicts in Nigeria. He monitored the six Nigerian elections in 2007 and in Sierra Leone. And he is author of numerous works on Nigerian politics, conflict resolution, including the 2016 book Civil Society, Conflict Resolution, and Democracy in Nigeria. Dr. Karen Ross is an assistant professor in the Department of Conflict Resolution, Human Security, and Global Governance, and a senior fellow at at the Center for Peace, Democracy, and Development, both at the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Karen's teaching and research focuses on the issues of intersection of dialogue, peace building, social activism, and education. She conducts basic and applied research to help understand the impact of grassroots peace building intervention. Her current work includes research with Jewish-Palestinian organizations in Israel, as well as the prison-based restorative justice initiatives in Massachusetts. She's also a part of a collaboration working to reshape the teaching of social science research methodology. Dr. Hugh, Darren, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks again for having me back. Dr. Ross, Karen, thank you for joining us with Solutions to Violence. We're honored to have you today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Darren, you've been a few miles since we uh, last talked. Uh, this is our, your second time with us. In what ways you've been involved with Peace Building and, and where you've been? Well, thank you. Even with COVID, it's been a busy couple of years. I've continued working on building Muslim-Christian dialogue in Nigeria, which you remember we talked about last time is a country that's sort of 50-50 divided Muslim-Christian with a lot of religious-based and ethnic-based conflicts. So I've been working with some of the states in Nigeria to build local peace-building agencies, um, which has been fascinating. I've also been working with Karen on a project looking at nonviolence uh, work worldwide. I've been focusing particularly on some of the stuff in Northern Ireland, and maybe Karen can talk about some of the work she's done in, in other parts of the world. And then we also had a project looking at election violence here in the United States around the elections back in November. Uh, some colleagues of mine and I helped to set up a, a network of peace activists around the United States trying to monitor the elections and to try to make sure, to try to prevent any sort of violence from, from exploding around um, some of what was happening then. Dr. Ross, Karen, you, you had a lot on your plate. What, what and, and other professional obligations are you, you keeping uh, your attention on at the moment? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, well, it's been an interesting year, to say the least, with COVID, really kind of shaped in different ways some of the things that I've been doing. But as Darren mentioned, one of the central research and practice-related projects that we've been working on is um, looking at the work being done by nonviolent or activists, um, nonviolent, you know, engaged in nonviolent action uh, in different parts of the world. And some of the work that I've been doing around that has been in Israel-Palestine and also with uh, Black Lives Matter activists here in the United States, trying to understand some of the work that they've done and how it can apply to groups and practitioners engaged in peace building on what the two, essentially what peace builders can learn from nonviolent activists. But as you mentioned, one of the areas, you mentioned in your introduction, one of the areas that I'm most involved in is dialogue. And believe it or not, even in the context of COVID, that's something that still is continuing to happen. So I've been involved with some efforts to engage in dialogue around COVID by organizations in the local 
Boston area, but also with an initiative that's sponsored by the Edward Kennedy Institute in Boston, actually part of our, on our campus at UMass Boston, and that's providing teachers with dialogue tools in order to help them be able to handle difficult conversations or conversations around difficult issues, perhaps I should put it, and doing some research with them about kind of how that, that's been going. And as you can imagine, in the current political climate, there's a lot of difficult issues or issues that are difficult to converse about. So that's been a big focus uh, in the last year and a half or so. And that's also reflected in kind of the teaching that I've been doing. I do a lot of teaching around dialogue. I work with students who are learning to facilitate dialogue. And so I've been lucky enough to continue being able to do that through COVID, albeit remotely rather than in person. But that's one of the teaching obligations that I've had recently and continuing to help our students learn to be effective peacemakers and peace builders around the world. So you mentioned dialogue, Karen, the intersection of dialogue, peace building and social activism and education issues. That sounds daunting, but there is the focus of your description of your academic and professional work. Where do you begin with these topics and how do they intersect? That's a great question. I get asked this actually a fair amount because it feels like the work that I do connects in some ways that aren't necessarily always easy to see. And maybe I give you a little bit of context for that. That my background before coming into academia and becoming a professor was working in the field of peace building, primarily in facilitating dialogue, but in particular facilitating and working on educational programs. So facilitating, developing curriculum for helping manage programs that bring young people together, mostly in kind of after-school context, so not so much as part of their formal education, but in uh, non-formal education as part of kind of the grassroots side of peace building. And the social activism piece comes into that as kind of something that I've learned and come to realize as I've been more involved in this work, both as a professional practitioner and as an academic, and we talk a lot about peace, and then we talk a lot about justice. And there has been for a long time, I think, a fairly large disconnect between how individuals think about these two things. But more and more, I think it's clear to those of us and Darren feel free to chime in, those of us in, in peace building, and certainly in kind of our academic work, that they are very closely linked, that you can't have peace without having justice, that you can't get to peace without addressing the inequities that underlie what conflict, the root are essentially the root causes of conflict. And many of the organizations that I've worked with have, you know, taken this to heart and how they've, the kind of work that they do with young people and what they're focused on, I guess, imparting as part of the educational work that they do to educate a next the next generation of, I guess, peace builders or justice pursuers, um, however you want to frame it. But more and more, it's clear to me, again, that these things all go together. So it's not so much, I think, how do they intersect from my perspective these days, but how much they intersect. And, you know, again, that underlies kind of my the work that I do, my philosophy as a facilitator when I'm engaged in dialogue or I'm working to develop kind of educational programs, but also how I approach the work that I do as a researcher. And, you know, the project that Darren and I are working on, I think is kind of right at the center of that, right? Trying to think about what these two areas of nonviolent action and you know, more traditional peace building, I'm holding my, I'm making air quotes with my hands, can learn from one another and bring together. Karen, you have uh, facilitated dialogues in the organization Celia, is that correct? Yes. For many 20 years now, they have taught young adults to approach difference, uh, differences con constructively and, and lead with empathy so so that all can thrive in an interconnected, pluralistic world. Celia is an organization that brings students together for domestic and international dialogue. You facilitated dialogue for students of Celia. What was your approach? Yeah, so that's a, it's a, I have been involved with Celia for a very long time. Since they were their first student group, I think they brought together in maybe in 2003, but I've been volunteering for them in some capacity since 2004. And it's actually been a while since I facilitated for them. More recently, I, uh, I coached facilitators, I trained facilitators, and most recently, actually, I've been working with students in our program at UMass Boston to become trained facilitators for their programs. And I would say, I mean, the approach that they take is really very unique in the sense that since its inception, so Leah has been an online dialogue program, and they really see themselves 
as modeling an opportunity for students who, you know, I mean, they work with undergraduate students at the university level. Now they work with more than just university students, but at it from its inception, Solia has been a program that worked with undergraduate students around the world, primarily initially in the Middle East and North Africa region, the MENA region, and the United States, although again, it's expanded since then. And they saw themselves as creating an opportunity for students who might not be able to go abroad, to study abroad, to meet in person, to have an opportunity to learn from one another and to learn about one another's culture and background and experiences in the context of facilitated model that they use. And it's not my model so much as me facilitating Solia's model is their the Connect program, which is their core program, brings students together for eight weeks two hours a week, same group of students with one or two facilitators. The students are from all over the world. And the program really starts from a place of building interpersonal understanding and then moves into addressing some of the kind of broader issues that are perhaps reflected in the contemporary political environments and so forth. Again, as I said, it started focused on the Middle East, North Africa region and the United States. And at the time when I was first facilitating, really emphasized kind of the rift between the U.S. and the Middle East. Of course, this was in the context of the war in Iraq. And, you know, but now kind of has expanded to address global issues more broadly. And then their program ends with what they call kind of an activation mode where they're really encouraging the students who have been involved with the dialogues to take a next step, to continue engaging in kind of helping their communities understand more about other cultures, writing op-eds, getting involved in their communities, and kind of engaging in a ripple effect model of trying to broaden understanding through the work that they do. Okay. So Darren, as you pointed out, you have observed, taught, and advised in countries like Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Northern Ireland, Central Africa, Kosovo, as well as the United States State Department, and advise a number of non-governmental organizations, including the Carter Center. Describe how your conflict resolution program might work in a country of Africa. What are the challenges as you first went to, let's choose maybe Sierra Leone, the West Coast country is known for Freetown as a focal point of the country's slave trade. What, what challenges remain there? Yeah, thank you, Jim. I mean, so there are more. There are so many challenges uh, that that countries in in West Africa face, and certainly we face, you know, a, a host of challenges here as well. I think one of the the key threads that I've been focusing on in the work lately is sort of a variation on this theme we've talked about in the past, where you know the the peace movement has argued for many years. You know, we have a defense department, we have an army, but we don't have a department of peace. You know, we don't have a peace institute. Well, now of course they've been building. You know, there is a U.S. Institute of Peace. You know, there are increasing peace architecture worldwide. And that's something that I think we've been working on extensively. So when we engage in Sierra Leone or in Nigeria, this latest project I've been working on has been trying to, to help states in, in Nigeria actually build peace units in, in their, their state bureaucracies and in, uh, in their local governments. Uh, but we'd be doing similar things here in the United States, actually. The, the city of Cambridge in, uh, you know, here in Massachusetts has a peace commission there's a couple of local towns that are looking about looking into building peace and human rights commissions. And, you know, across the country, there's a smattering of these kinds of committees and commissions uh, uh, around uh, around the United States. You know, Chicago has a human rights commission and so on. I think many cities, especially, you know, when you when you merge this with the conversation out there about defunding the police and so on. I think a lot of folks are, are thinking about saying, you know, we have state institutions that are heavy on the coercive side of, uh, you know, of the ledger. Um, what can we do in terms of trying to help state and local governments to build institution and infrastructure that can use peace techniques when going into the circumstances that we face? And, and in that sense, I think the United States actually can learn a lot from these efforts that are going on in Africa and in the Middle East, where these are deeply divided societies and where folks have been you know, struggling with, with deep set grievances and longstanding histories of violence, trying to help states set up infrastructure where you actually have somebody whose job it is to think proactively about peace between communities in our state, in our local government, you know, rather than acting reactively which is what happens typically and understandably 
you know, for state institutions now, there's nobody necessarily tasked with thinking ahead about building peace infrastructure in terms of building relationships between communities. Now, a lot of cities around the United States and, and of course, around the world are starting to think, you know, hmm, maybe we need to actually have somebody whose job it is to think about this stuff 24-7 or at least nine to five and, and to try to kind of engage communities and to do this sort of training. And institutions like ours and, and Karen and I, you know, provide sort of the, the educational backup and the, the research component, but we also do trainings. And sometimes uh, we are asked to do facilitation and, and mediation efforts in communities, you know, in, in West Africa, in, in my case, uh, but for both of us also here in the United States, um, we try to do our part locally in the communities that we live in and, and in other places across the country. Yeah, I think we need to send this conversation to uh, Greg Fisher, the mayor of Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a lot of backlash. Uh, well, Darren and Karen, some of your work is focused on and around grassroots programs. We hear a lot about grassroots. They bring individuals together around conflict divides. And it's like the Jewish and the Palestinian situation in Israel, for example. Tell us about the grassroots program and give us some examples of how people have been brought together across a conflict that has typically divided them. Karen? Oh, okay. I thought you wanted to start with Karen first, um, talking about the Middle East. Well, so I'll start, and 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 Karen, uh, you know, you you definitely uh, pick up. I, I think you know. Um, I mean, for your listeners thinking about these things, you know, one of the the first places to to start with a, with a grassroots initiative is to find a a team of folks um, uh, that are interested in building relationships across conflict divides. And, and ideally, of course, it'd be best if your team included folks from both sides of the divide. You know, so if you're interested in building peace, think about you know, who are people on the other side of the divide that you know, are thinking like me in terms of hopefully to try to build relationships and to sort of build a little contact group among you and to start having a conversation to say, all right, you know, um, what might a, a peace process or a confidence building process across the divides that we're working with look like? And, um, and, and that's a kind of committee also that, that Karen and I will, will interface with. So, you know, if you don't feel like you have the mediation or the, the facilitation skills to have the kind of conversations you'd like to have, you know, there are a lot of folks like us, you know, in, in your state or around the country and also obviously, of course, as well, that, that, that you can talk to and you can think about, you know, and you can learn a little bit about how might a process like this work. And then, you know, from there, we'll sort of build a strategy that typically will look to say, Oftentimes, I'll start with thinking about who are sort of prominent individuals in the communities that are in conflict and how do we engage them? Sometimes, you know, like where I work in Nigeria, we'll often look to religious leaders or, or sort of traditional chieftaincies or sometimes, you know, prominent political or community leaders. And we'll begin a, an outreach process to them individually, this little committee of, of peace activists. You know, we'll reach out to these prominent folks and engage them in a dialogue process where they can begin to talk about the issues together. And then once these notable individuals have have talked about it, you know, each of these people are connected to their own networks. You can then work with them to to sort of reach down into their networks to begin to sort of to do the relationship building at a broader scale in the in the communities that they that they represent. And I'll just add to that a little bit. So, I mean, Darren's talking about religious leaders within communities who he's done a lot of work with. And like I said, I tend to do work with organizations that are bringing youth together. So that's even more grassroots, right? So we're talking about young people who don't have necessarily a lot of decision-making power in their own communities. But I think the programs that I've either worked with or have done research with, so I've been working with as a researcher, um, have been really focused on bringing young people together in particular in contexts like the Israeli Palestine or in Israel, bringing Jewish and Palestinian citizens together, for example, because it is such a different way of kind of approaching things than the very kind of the segregation and the that exists uh, for the most part, and to try to create a framework for, you know, in a very hopeful sense, building a generation of or next generation's leaders who are who you know, been working together already. So you know, I think one of the issues that is true, not only in 
what we think of as perhaps conflict regions around the world, but also here in the United States, is that when we don't know other people well, when we aren't familiar with other groups of people, that there's a lot of there. I mean, and, and this is something that uh, in the social psychology field is kind of very been very well studied. That there's a lot of of uh, dehumanization at the worst, but even at you know kind of the best instance, a tendency to like see ourselves and kind of an us them way. And a lot of the work that uh, both Darren and I do is really focused on trying to shift that so that people who are part of different groups, either across conflict lines or just across different identity backgrounds, see themselves as having the ability to work together in complementary ways and in constructive ways, rather than pursuing approaches that tend to be, or that can be more destructive and escalate into violence. And if I could add to that, I mean, one of the interesting things, you know, that that, that really comes out of this kind of work is, you know, on, on the one hand, like Karen is saying, you know, part of what we do is, is helping educate people to learn about each other. But also part of it too, is a little bit of deprogramming in the sense that it's not like, you know, black, white, Latinx, you know, Asian within the United States. It's not like, you know, people of those communities don't know each other. You know, they often do and interact with each other on a regular basis. Uh, it's in fact trying to convince people that what they already think they know about the other group may not be as correct as they think it is. You know, so in the same thing in Nigeria, you know, Muslims and Christians, it's not like they don't interact, they interact all the time. It's that they think, oh, yeah, I know how those Muslims are. I interact with them all the time. I know how those Christians are. This is the way they, they you know, this is what they think and what they believe. And as Karen's saying, often a lot of what we have to try to do is first to say, well, first of all, they, in quotes, right, are not who you thought they were. And perhaps the things that you believed are not exactly correct. You know, so we often have to start in a process getting people not only to know each other, but also to have them sort of rethink what they thought they knew about each other. And then from there, you know, once we sort of muddy the waters a little bit, helping to inspire some hope in the, that group to say, well, okay, I've discovered you as an individual and, oh, you know, you're a black person, you're a white person, you're not exactly what I thought you were. Um, what do we do with that? You know, how do, we, how do we take that and transform that into action? And, and that's sort of another part of the process that we work on. That's a tough one. And I hope we can get into some of that process, but I uh, know we don't have a whole lot of time, but maybe, maybe we can, maybe we'll go to another, another program. Huh? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, Darren, you kind of answered this question, but you know, if you've lived through the year 2020 and into 2021, also cities all across the United States have seen and have witnessed demonstrations. So, we're thinking the political leadership in those cities also need to think about organizations participating in organizations that think proactively about peace and justice and learning and practice. So what persons in decision-making positions have you had the opportunity to coach? What was the outcome? So the, the coaching that we've done so far, I mean, has sort of run the, the gamut. I mean, I, I think we, we particularly focus on working with local peace activists and sort of the, the peace community itself you know, tends to include a lot of folks that are more on the justice side of the, the spectrum, as Karen was talking about earlier. And part of it is, as Karen was saying, you know, working with those folks, first of all, to think about saying, you know, rather than seeing justice as, as an end goal, but of course it is, obviously, it, justice like peace is a process. And so it's something that requires sort of steps moving in that direction. And when you see it as a process, it then becomes something that you can negotiate a bit, you know, and you have to think in terms of, all right, we're not going to make things perfect overnight. What are the steps that need to be taken so that we can talk to each other and better understand, you know, what it is that we both want. And, and of course, it's not just two, if there are many different, you know, interests out there and, and begin to sort of think about, all right, how do we understand those? And then how do we sort of begin to set some steps in place where we can start to move things? I think then, you know, engaging city leaders, you know, particularly sort of, you know, city managers, people on city councils, and then, you know, people of, of authority that actually have some responsibility for, for responding to these concerns, trying to help them think about, you know, options that maybe they haven't thought about before. So the kind of dialogue processes that Karen is talking about, it's not something that, you know, that, that most, you know, political leaders, you know, they all, of course, understand dialogue and mediation, but how such a process can work is not something maybe that they've seen. So helping them have a sense of what the possibilities are for that. And then, of course, engaging the police, you know, the police themselves, you know, are you know, increasingly over the last, you know, 50 years have been tasked with a host of additional responsibilities outside of what we would consider the normal policing uh, yeah. roles. And so helping police, the uh, you know, police institutions 
to, to better understand dialogue, to think about, you know, who are groups in the community they can turn to because, you know, they're police, they want to do policing activities. They shouldn't necessarily be running dialogues. Who are groups that they can turn to as allies in engaging communities that are unhappy and that have, you know, legitimate issues that need to be vented and trying to provide fora and, and, uh, and vehicles for that kind of conversation. Karen, you're working with grassroots organizations in Israel and Palestine. How does yep. that dialogue between the Israelis and, and Palestinians change the thinking and in those grassroots organizations? So this is actually something that is really the focus of my research, as you said at the beginning, is in trying to understand the impact of these kinds of grassroots programs. And I guess what I would say is that at the individual level, it has a really transformative effect for a lot of people. That is to say, kind of to the point that Darren was making earlier, there's a lot of, he called it deep programming, I call it sometimes unlearning that happens about not only other groups, but about oneself, one's own group. So one of the things that a lot of these organizations that I've done work with try to do is to get individuals to move away from thinking of, we were correct, we are correct, they are wrong. And to think a little bit more in a more complex and nuanced way about what is it that we have done wrong and what are our legitimate grievances and what are the legitimate grievances of the other group. And I always feel a little bit strange saying the group, the group, because obviously individuals are part of groups, but they're also individuals and their identities intersect in many very different kinds of ways. So it, it's, it's a little bit of simplification to say it's, you know, it's us and them in a clear cut way even when we're talking about Jews and Palestinians in Israel. There are two groups that have had conflict for a long time, but are very complex within themselves. But at a broader level, you know, we talk about what's kind of can come out of these kinds of programs and what kind of changes we can see. Uh, I think one of the things that has been kind of the most eye-opening to me over the last, I would say, 20 years since I first became involved in this work in some capacity is really, and maybe naivete, because I'm not saying that this is new information in any way, shape, or form, but something that's become clearer and clearer to me is that how these programs try to help participants unlearn and kind of learn about and engage with one another and take action together makes a really big difference for how much they continue to engage and people continue to be involved in creating change. And we see that also, again, reflected in the United States and kind of thinking about anti-racism work that there's some transformative moments or kind of an awareness, critical consciousness that develops that leads to people being really motivated to act for change, not only at an individual level in terms of making friends or seeing other individuals as their own friends, but in terms of saying, all right, I'm going to get involved in this initiative to change policy in my city or to try to um, affect legislation or, you know, so the organization that I've spent uh, about a decade doing work with in Israel, Sadaqa and my work with them has been like almost entirely on the research side. So I take no credit for the amazing work that they actually do. It's an educational organization that's really about developing critical consciousness of social issues in Israeli society. And the young people who are involved with their programs go have gone on to do amazing things, creating one young, well, I guess, I don't know how young he is anymore, but when I first met him, young Palestinian man who I met who is from a small rural village in Northern Israel, created an entire kind of women's center in his village, created employment opportunities for women in his village and kind of was doing a lot of work also to shift attitudes about what's considered legitimate work and what should be recognized and what should be a paid work and who should be doing it. And, you know, other young people who've gone on to be involved with political uh, parties in Israel and who are very involved as activists in their communities. And so I think when we talk about, you know, what are the kind of the outcomes that we can see from these grassroots and youth oriented programs, there's a lot that happens individually. But I think if you're able to kind of spark that critical awareness of among young people about just other perspectives and other understandings of the world and what they've been brought up with or socialized into or taught in school. It really has the possibility of creating, engaging like a, you know, a whole spectrum of 
activists and in particular in this organization, since they're working with Jewish and Palestinian young people, a group of people who are really motivated to work together as Jews and Palestinians together to change the social fabric of Israeli society. And I just really, I don't think, I, there's there's things that I could say about them and then the things that people uh, say about the organization that's, you know, some criticism as well, but I don't, I think I just, I really admire the work that they do and the young people that I've had the chance to meet and spend time with. And my work there has been, you know, just a real inspiration for my, me and really a huge learning. You know, I've gotten so much out of it myself and it feeds into my work also as a practitioner and someone who's involved in kind of peace and justice work locally in my own community, as Darren was saying before. So, okay. And I, Karen, what the work that you're doing in, in Israel and Palestine is critically important. But I have this question. The sometimes violent conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians began in 1947, and it continues today. So how will changing the hearts and minds of individuals and grassroots organizations impact the political leadership of both Israel and Palestine? That's a great question. I think that's probably the $20 million question. So if I'm able to answer it, I hope somebody comes raining cash down. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, the truth is, I think that this speaks to something that maybe I should only speak for myself, but I imagine that many of us who are engaged in this work around peace building ask ourselves all the time, which is what kind of difference does this work ultimately make in building a sustainable, peaceful, just societies? And the truth is any one part of the equation is not enough. So I've done a tremendous, I mean, the, the majority of the work that I've done has been focused on commu- at the community level and, and, you know, educational programs and youth, in part because I feel very strongly as someone who has a kind of background in education, that education in whatever form it takes is critically important as a foundation for achieving a change, but it's not enough. So, you know, one of the questions that I've been interested in is what do we do in order to broaden the impact of these kinds of the kinds of initiatives that Darren and I are both involved with? In fact, the project that he and I have been working on together is exactly about that, right? How do you take um, the kind of local community-based, very small scale work that's being done to bring people together, maybe not just to change hearts and minds, but even to create change at a local level and scale it up so that we can achieve change at national levels, you know, across not only communities, but across kind of whole societies and so on. And in this Israeli-Palestinian case, I mean, what I can say is that the young people who've been part of some of these programs, as I said before, some of them have gone on to be active in their communities, uh, active politically, right? So they're part of the political fabric of Israeli and Palestinian as well, Israeli and Palestinian society as well. So in that capacity, they're able to create change at a legislative level. Some of them are part of national movements that are working to shape or to impact the way that policy is being made at a national level. And so it's not that you know, I don't, I, I think it would be disingenuous of me to say, you know, there are these grassroots peace building organizations or grassroots peace education programs that are out there, and they're going to change the world. Well, they, hopefully they will in some way, but it's not them on their own, that's going to get us there. I think what it's part, it's a part of, I think, has to be part of a much broader framework for achieving peace across, and you know, you asked Jim about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but any kind of societal or international conflict that's been going on for such a long time as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has. Okay, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican in, in our White House in the United States, the United States is a really steadfast uh, supporter of Israel, providing the weapons of war and bias brokers and all. Won't that Israel support provide the U.S., provided by the U.S. have to uh, change before any real opportunity for peace uh, between Israel and, and Palestine uh, begins to happen? If, it, if the answer is yes, then how do we get the U.S. political leadership to, to change that position? I know you said that, you know, this, most of us are going to make small changes, and that's very important. But if we look at large, large uh, changes and, and uh, people in, in control, how do, we, how do we address that? Well, one way I think we address that is by thinking about large changes as changes, as small, as changes by people with large number, large amount of control. 
right? So if we're trying to convince our political leadership that we need to change what they're doing to do the right thing, then we need to convince individuals that they need to take a different tactic. And maybe it's not just one individual, right? So it's not just convincing President Biden, but convincing the members of Congress or senators, right? And that's, I think, you know, kind of in the context of shaping hearts and minds, that's, I think, a really big part of it. At the end of the day, at least the way I tend to think about these processes that, you know, peace building happens the same way in some respects, whether you're talking about negotiation between two siblings or a negotiation between two countries, right? Obviously, the stakes are higher, at least it might seem higher from the outside, although for two siblings arguing, they're probably not going to say that the stakes aren't as high for them. But it's the same kind of processes and principles that exist at every level. So can we convince leaders, political leaders in the United States that it is in the best interest of the United States to change its approach towards providing funding, providing military uh, funding, um, supporting Israel's uh, expansion of settlements in the way that we have. I think that's what really needs to happen, right? Is thinking about it in terms of the principles of, and certainly, you know, as a, as a very engaged um, player in that conflict, the United States has its own interests. So I think, you know, a big part of it is convincing the leadership that it is in the best interests of the United States, not only in the best interests of Israel and Palestine, to change tactics. And, and frankly, I think, you know, I mean, the United States has been involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a very long time. And what it's doing right now isn't, has, it hasn't worked, right? I mean, you know, when we think back about, I think back to the Oslo, the signing of the Oslo Accords at the White House in 1993, and kind of the euphoria of that moment. And here we are almost 30 years later. And I would say that things are probably just as bad, if not worse than they were in, uh, prior to that period in a lot of ways. So, you know, what we're doing isn't working. What can we do differently that would serve our interests as a nation that might also be constructive in the context of addressing the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Maybe I can jump in real quick, too, just to suggest that uh, just like Israel-Palestine, I mean, I think, you know, the United States foreign policy is often uh, very much dominated by, by diaspora politics. So, you know, U.S. foreign policy towards Israel and Palestine is very much dominated by folks who have, you know, direct connection to Israel, the Jewish diaspora and so on. Is only a very small Palestinian community in the United States. The same thing with Nigeria politics. The, the Nigerian diaspora in the United States tends to be heavily on the Christian side of the ledger. So U.S. foreign policy tends to be more heavily influenced by Christian Nigerians. Just like, you know, there's a huge Armenian diaspora. So U.S. policy toward, uh, toward uh, Armenia and Turkey tends to, you know, tilt in the Armenian direction. And obviously, we just saw the way President Biden um, you know, uh, uh, tilted in, in that direction just this last week. So, um, so part of our our sort of our, our foreign policy peace efforts, I think, need to be directed toward diasporas in terms of engaging them in conversations here. Um, and you know, this is something even you know in your own community you can think about in terms of uh, trying to talk about you know well what like as Karen said you know what's what is what's happening and what's not working, and are there are, are there opportunities for for new thinking, um, which can then translate up. If you're having these dialogues in your communities, then you're going to, uh, you're going to uh, get the, the attention uh, of your representatives uh, in your communities. And sort of that grassroots approach can be very effective, particularly in terms of impacting Congress and the way Congress thinks about these sorts of issues. So Darren and Karen, both of you have been involved in the situation in the Middle East. The war in Iraq and Afghanistan is now 17 years long. President Biden says he plans to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 2021, effectively ending U.S. military commitment in that region. Some say withdrawing U.S. troops from the region will leave the Afghan government without adequate military support and give the Taliban an opportunity to step up military operations. What say you, Darren? Will withdrawing U.S. troops from the region result in less violence or just provide the Taliban with a chance to increase the violence? Yeah, I'll, I'll take, maybe I'll just take a 10,000 feet perspective in, in answering the question and, and see if, it, if it's helpful. Because, I mean, I do think you know, the removal of the troops is certainly going to impact the dynamics on the ground. You know, the U.S. troop presence has not been large enough that it's been sort of a, a, 
I, I, a major determinant factor, you know, in, in the last five, 10 years. It's certainly been a, an important symbolic and emotional support for, for the government in Kabul. And I, and I don't think, you know, American support for the government in Kabul is not going to lessen. If anything, it's going to increase as, as troops are, are being removed, uh, I would expect. So, you know, the Biden administration has no interest in seeing the Taliban marching across Afghanistan. So I, I think that they're going to continue to be supportive of what's happening there. But there's no doubt that, um, uh, you know, the Taliban may, may be emboldened to some extent. Um, but throughout this whole period, let's remember that the, the Americans have been talking to the Taliban during this, this time. And I, I expect that that there is a continuation of that conversation going on. So there are some possibilities of some, some negotiated um, solutions here. I mean, negotiating with the Taliban, of course, has its limits and it certainly raises uh, important concerns. But I, I do think that uh, there are some, some possibilities in there where some kind of a, a peaceable transitional solution might, might still be in the works, but we'll have to, to wait and see. I would also add into this picture, I mean, let's not forget that Iran is right next door. Efforts to try to rebuild some sort of, of sort of agreement with Iran, I think will have an influence on what's going on in Afghanistan. And I think the, the Biden administration has all the more interest now in trying to come to some kind of a new agreement on the Iranian nuclear program that creates some incentive for Iran to create less trouble in the region in order to push the Americans to negotiate. So I think these issues are, are linked and there are, I mean, there are other big issues that are linked to this, but that would be my sense as to, to where things are going. Well, Karen, in what other countries have you worked and, and what have you hoped to accomplish there? Besides Israel and Palestine? So I've spent some time in, in South Africa and in Northern Ireland, both places relatively short amounts of time compared to the amount of time I've spent in the Israeli context. Um, so certainly I have much less to report in terms of what I've helped to accomplish. Well, I will say when I was in South Africa, I was working for uh, an organization called IDASA, the Institute for Democracy. I think Institute for Democracy in South Africa. It is no longer open, but was an institute that was doing a lot of work to kind of build democracy in the post-apartheid era. And even prior to that, to kind of push the individuals who I was working with were also very active in the anti-apartheid movement. And some of the work that I was doing there revolved around also bringing communities together around dialogue, not so much dialogue for kind of unlearning perceptions and changing hearts and minds, but dialogue that was invested in finding ways of working together within communities for economic development, for example, and to kind of build capacity within communities in South Africa. So I had a chance to be involved with some of that. And then in the last couple of years, I've actually been doing more and more work here in the United States, which isn't perhaps the same kind of conflict region that we associate with other parts of the world. But I've been doing some work in correctional institutions, and also something that I think Darren has had some involvement with, helped steer me toward doing some restorative justice work, which is something that is kind of a different facet of peace building, I would say. And and linking to some criminal justice reform efforts that have occurred here in Massachusetts. So that has been the greater focus of my work in recent years. But again, most of the work that I do personally is really at a community and kind of in the grassroots level, right? So I'm less involved, at least in my professional capacity, as someone who's involved in kind of higher level diplomatic negotiations or some of the work that Darren has done in Nigeria and elsewhere, I think fits into the that what we might call track two more kind of diplomatic efforts than the uh, the bulk of the work that I do both here in the United States and elsewhere. Certainly, uh, sympathize with uh, restorative justice. Uh, we've had two guests, as a matter of fact, uh, speaking about restorative justice. Uh, but when you're working with different dialogue groups, groups about, about dialogue, and you're encouraging that, do you see differences in, in terms of different locations or states that you or nations that you, you've worked with? Do you have to adjust your, your approach? Um, that's a great question. I think to some degree, I see differences in different contexts. And I think this is true for peace building as a whole that, you know, I mean, any kind of initiative has to be adapted for and adopted by local contexts, right? We can't assume that there's some universal model that's going to work in the Israeli-Palestinian context and in the Turkish-Armenian context and in, you know, the North-South Korean context and every other part of the world. You know, I think a lot of the 
techniques that we tend to use are facilitative in the sense of trying to encourage communication by participants in the dialogue. So um, some of the things that might change have to do with how, at least for me, how how to frame you know, ground rules or norms going into the dialogue. In sustained dialogue initiatives, there's a lot that's more than the dialogue, right? So there's opportunities for kind of culturally based initiatives and programs and so forth. And of course, that's going to vary from place to place. I think actually one of the more interesting differences that I see is not only across contexts, but also if we're talking about dialogue across groups that are in conflict, there is often a pretty big difference between how members of those two different groups approach the dialogue. And that actually is something that I see in different contexts. So for example, a dialogue between Jews and Palestinians in Israel, in some ways, the way the Palestinians and Jews respond to the dialogue is not that dissimilar from the ways that, for example, interracial dialogue in the United States that's bringing together white citizens of the United States with black citizens of the United States, the way that black citizens will respond relative to white participants. And I think it really a lot of that has to do with positionality within society, right? So, you know, this is, there's, and actually there's quite a bit of research on this too, that for example, members of a dom- the dominant group tend to approach dialogue from the perspective of let's get to know all one another as individuals and let's focus on our individual, that aspect of it, like kind of the deep programming at an individual level. Groups that are experiencing injustice or oppression tend to approach a dialogue from, all right, he's our chance to like really tell our story and talk about the structural and systemic discrimination that we've been facing. And let's talk about that right? Like, I don't want to be your friend. I want you to understand that we've been experiencing oppression for the last 60 years, 400 years, you know, whatever it is, depending on the context. So that's, I think, in some ways, more distinct difference that I tend to see than necessarily the differences across different geographic spaces. But certainly, as I said before, there's a lot of maybe not not dramatic, but shifts and adaptations in how to approach dialogue, depending on where you're located. So many of us are becoming, and this kind of goes along, Karen, with some of the thinking you have around how African-Americans and and white people communicate. So many of us are becoming more aware of the ongoing challenges of Blacks and other people of color in this country. It seems more white citizens of the U.S. have begun to question their understanding of racism, read more, and listen more. We clearly have a long way to go, but perhaps have uh, commitments by some, at least, to make headway on resolving the conflicts with people of color. Would helping people connect on issues of commonality be a step in the right direction in terms of resolving racial divide? And you kind of addressed this, Karen, but uh, what else are you thinking here? Great question. And also, Darren, I feel free to also jump in on this one, because I know this is something that you spent time thinking about and working on as well. One of the things that is is true about dialogue and kind of links to what I said before about solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that it's one step, right? It's a necessary step. And I think what makes it necessary and what actually makes it so important is that it provides an opportunity when we talk about dialogue among individuals and small groups, is that it provides people with an opportunity to learn the stories, to learn individual stories, and to understand for someone sitting across the room from them, or, you know, these days in COVID, sitting on the Zoom screen with them, right? But have a face that they're looking at and they can, they hear really how individuals have been affected in a deep way, uh, in a really impacted in a very deep way because of what is happening around them. And what I think is so important and impactful about this kind of dialogue is that hearing that kind of narrative can offer the for someone to begin to question what it is that they've thought about, what they thought, what they've heard, and what they've known. So for me, for example, I mean, this is a radio program, so your listeners can't see me, but sitting here as someone who is white and who has went to public school in the United States and learned a certain version of history from the textbooks that were used in my classes and from the teachers who I had, I wouldn't know without hearing from my Black friends, my Latinx friends, my, you know, immigrant friends from other countries, what their experience has been as individuals living in this country in this last period of time. So the potential of dialogue as one 
starting place for that kind of for and conflict resolution or in peace building, I think, is to kind of create the impetus for people to start to think differently about what the society is around them, what reality is around them, and then provide a starting place for them to change, to work towards change, right? And I mentioned before, lots of young people who I've met in the Israeli context who are working to change Jewish and Palestinian youth who are working to change their communities. The same is true, for example, in the community that I live in right now, I've been very involved in facilitating, for example, dialogue among white people in my own community. That's really about providing an opportunity to reflect on what is it that we've always known that actually maybe isn't really true. And then what can we do to change that? And we've had some successes as uh, in, a, in our community. I mean, I would say we, like our community has made some changes recently. And I think are reflective of that. You asked about kind of uh, the experience of uh, black people in this country, but I think more generally, as we start to hear one another, to listen one another and to kind of act in our own communities to try to change the narrative that's been presented in education, presented in the media, presented in things like the calendars that we see all around us. It's a start, you know, again, it's not going to be what we're not going to have a like overnight shift to a country that everyone recognizes as just and achieving its ideals that it, that we aspire to. But but that's, I think, the starting place. Yeah, let me maybe add a bit to what, what Karen said, I mean, uh, which I think is so very important. I think, you know, certainly America writ large, but particularly white America has been sensitized increasingly to structural racism in the events of the last five, 10 years for, for sure. But I think the sort of the, and, and a natural starting place when you recognize structural racism is to think about, well, you know, what responsibility you know, does the, the white community have for how we got here? But I think we need to move the next step from that sort of narrative, as Karen is saying, to a more inclusive narrative that says, what does the United States need to do as, as a community to try to change the way racism uh, has hurt everyone in this country? The white community has been hurt by racism in a different way than the black community, Latinx community, Asian communities have all been impacted by racism. But the white community has lost because of the privileges that it has in many ways. And this is the sort of thing I think that if you're a poor white farmer living in a rural area somewhere, you're saying, you know, what 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 sort of benefits have I ever had for being white? You know, it's something that you, you just don't see it that much, you know, because it's not a daily part of your life. So attacking structural racism is more than simply just sort of shifting, you know, the economic picture, more than sh shifting the legal picture. We're really talking about, you know, how can we as a community, as an American community, talk about these issues in ways so that we can understand each other better. And so attacking structural racism is also, I think, a, a conversation about how do we structure dialogue in this country? You know, how can we, our institutions, foster dialogue so that white people living in a, in a lily white uh, suburb or a lily white town have some sort of interaction and conversation with people of different colors who may also be living in monoracial, monoethnic, you know, enclaves where they don't run into a lot of white people in their lives. So how do you try to have those sorts of conversations and how do you structure a community so that part of what we do when we grow up is we learn to understand each other in a different way? And there are lots of different ways from around the world that we can we can learn how to do this. And, and again, this gets back to institutions where our schools, our local governments can have a, a huge role in just making sure that people of different colors, different backgrounds are interacting with each other in a facilitated way that helps them understand each other different. So folks, we're out of time. We want to thank Dr. Darren Pugh, Associate Professor of Conflict Resolution and the Executive Director of the Center for Peace, Democracy and Development at UMass Boston. And we want to thank Dr. Karen Ross, Assistant Professor and in the Department of Conflict Resolution, Human Security, and Global Governance, and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Peace, Democracy, and Development. As our guest today, Solution to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Dr. Q and Dr. Karen Ross will air again May 11th and May 12th. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardvideo.org and click on listen. Live now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Koo and Dr. Ross will be placed in the WFMP archives Wednesday, May 12, 2021. To visit our archives, go to Forward Radio at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, then choose the Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Karen Koo and Dr. Karen Ross. For information and a schedule of programming that will surprise, delight you, and challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. From the broadcast schedule, choose the programs that pique your interest. Those of us at Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, 
appreciate your support. It's Louisville, Kentucky's grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station, empowering new voices to create vital programming heard nowhere else. Please send your thoughts and suggestions to solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thanks for joining us in our exploration of Solutions of Violence.